Now, I'm sure these are names that many of you uh, are familiar with, but let me just do a little sort of thumbnail, a little vignette uh, on each of those. William Tyndale. William Tyndale was, uh, was a, um, a man who lived in the 16th century. His vision, his heart, was to translate the Bible uh, into the English language. His vision was that every plowboy in England should have scripture, should have the word of God uh, in his own language. And he took great risks to bring that about. So when he went to see the Bishop of London to get permission to make that translation, uh, not surprisingly, the Bishop of London saw it as a great threat to the power of the church to allow uh, the common people of England to have a Bible in their own language. And so he refused Tyndale permission to translate the Bible into English. Tyndale um, nevertheless pursued his, uh, his vision and his ambition. It took him to the continent uh, where he was able to uh, find printing presses to print his work and bring it back into England. But ultimately it cost him his life. And so he was uh, eventually uh, tracked down by uh, the churches or the state's spies. He was strangled uh, and he was burned uh, for his pain. But look at the legacy that he left. Look at the legacy that he left. 500 years later, we're reading the fruit of his work. 500 years later, millions and millions of people have come to know the Lord Jesus because they're able to have the word of God uh, in their own language, in English. The second um, couple of characters that I want to touch on are uh, George Whitfield and John Wesley, and I'll take them uh, together. They both lived uh, at a very similar time, uh, from the early 18th century to the late 18th century. Uh, and they both also belong together because uh, they, I, I, I suppose, represent uh, that big shift in church history in the 18th century where the, the Methodist movement uh, was, uh, was given birth to. They were both light in a corrupt age. The established church in England in the 18th century was a very corrupt place. Uh, bishops uh, would buy and sell livings, buy and sell the, uh, the um, ability to appoint rectors. Uh, and that was a big source of income, it was a big source uh, of capital profit. These men had ministries both to the rich uh, and to the poor. They followed in the footsteps of a famous Welsh preacher and they preached uh, at times to 20 and 30,000 people in open fields. There's a lovely story of George Whitfield when he was in America. He traveled to America seven times. Can you imagine going back and forth to America seven times uh, in that era? But he went to America in the 1830s, late 1830s, 18, uh, 1730s, 1740s, and he preached uh, in many different parts of the eastern states of America. It's a lovely story when he's preaching to the coal miners in Pennsylvania. And you can imagine, he's on a platform, uh, it's, uh, it's sort of late in the day, uh, and these men are standing, thousands of them, probably tens of thousands of them in a field, with grimy faces, they've been working in the, in the pit all day. And one of the people who was on the platform at Whitfield said that as he preached, as the word of God went forth, you could see rivulets trickling down the faces, uh, these grimy faces of these, uh, of these men. John Newton, um, uh, who uh, was, was more uh, England-based, travelled thousands and thousands of miles on horseback to preach the gospel, to establish a whole uh, network of Methodist chapels. These two men were 
the primary moving forces of the Great Awakening in America in the early 18th century and the Methodist revival uh, and the great and the uh, the great evangelical revival uh, in the late uh, later part of the century. John Newton. John Newton is a name that we all know. Um, I'm sure from his wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace. I was saying to Carl beforehand, we had a, a great privilege at uh, my church in Sydney a couple of weeks ago, where we sang that great hymn, and we had a couple of opera singers in our congregation, and it was just the most moving thing. I don't know about you, but that last verse where it talks about being in heaven 10,000 years and it's like nothing. Um, what a wonderful hymn. But we, we know uh, Newton, don't we, primarily for his involvement in uh, the slave abolition movement, his mentoring of William Wilberforce, for those of you who've seen the movie. Uh, the character uh, portrayed in the movie is a sad reflection of the real John Newton, uh, if you've read anything about his life. But Newton was more than that. He was a great trainer of young men. Uh, he was a great publisher of uh, books and tracts to help people in their faith. Uh, and he was um, a great minister, first of all in Buckinghamshire and then in London, where he would draw uh, many people from outside his parish boundaries uh, to come and hear him preach uh, the gospel. So he has a twofold legacy. He has the great legacy, of course of that social movement of the abolition of slavery and ultimately the emancipation of slaves, uh, and he played a central role in that. But his role of training up young men to carry the gospel forward is a great work that we mustn't forget. And finally, Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, who established the China Inland Mission uh, in the, uh, the mid-19th uh, century, uh, was a man who went to China uh, really against all odds. Uh, in many respects, uh, in many respects, but his achievements under God were extraordinary. Uh, he brought uh, a, 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 through the China Inland Mission over 800 missionaries to China. Uh, they established 125 schools. It's estimated as, as a result of the work of the China Inland Mission during Hudson Taylor's tenure that uh, over 18,000 Chinese uh, were converted. 300 stations of work and 500 local helpers in all 18 provinces of China. What an extraordinary work. What an extraordinary work. He understood holistic ministry, but he was even evangelistically driven. Listen to, listen to this quote from Hudson Taylor. If I had a thousand pounds, China should have it. If I had a thousand lives, China should have them. No, not China, but Christ. Can we do too much for him? Can we do enough for such a precious saviour? As we think about the legacy of Hudson Taylor today, isn't the Chinese church the fastest growing um, part of the church in the world? And the seed was sown over 150 years ago by one man, uh, Hudson Taylor. So those are um, a, a, a number of characters who, under God, through his strength, did amazing things in their era and laid down a legacy that we all see today and in some instances benefit from today. But who stood behind them? Well, let me tell you a little bit about the patrons who stood behind these uh, great men who were raised up by God. Humphrey Monmouth was the patron to, uh, to uh, William Tyndale. He was a cloth merchant when Tyndale was refused permission to, uh, to 
translate the Bible, uh, Monmouth offered him a chaplaincy in his home. He provided funding for Tyndale to carry on his work of translation. When the time came for Tyndale to move to the continent to continue his work and to be uh, put in touch with the new presses that were emerging in Germany, Monmouth sent him there. He gave him protection. He gave him funding. He used his business network to put uh, Tyndale in touch with the right people. An irony of ironies, when the printing was done uh, of the early chapters and they started to come back into England, they came back in bolts of cloth uh, in, uh, in uh, Monmouth's ships. And the irony that I love is that these bolts of cloth, no doubt, would have been used to dress the very people, the very hierarchy, the very establishment who wanted to hunt Tyndale down and stop his work. So he used his contacts, he used his protection, and he used his ships to help this work. Um, John Thornton was the patron of John Newton. Thornton was a very wealthy merchant in England uh, in, the 17, in the 18th century, became a Christian, as far as we can tell, in 1754, uh, under the ministry of a man called Henry Van. And his support of Newton was unstinting. He realized from an early stage that Newton was someone special, and so he purchased a living for Newton in Buckinghamshire in a place called Olney. He subsequently ensured that uh, Newton came down to London, to St. Mary's Woolnoth, another living that he bought. It was through Thornton that the connection with William Wilberforce was made, because Wilberforce uh, was a, a, a relation of Thornton. He, over time, bought 13 livings, and he also supported another man called William Bull, uh, who was a trainer of uh, young men. He set up a, uh, a theological college called the Dissenting Academy uh, for young men who didn't want to be part of the established church. Uh, and uh, Thornton supported that along with Newton. It was a Thornton-Newton uh, project. He was responsible for uh, also supporting uh, a ministry to indigenous Indians in North America, uh, a college that was subsequently become Dartmouth College, one of the uh, one of the um, uh, Ivy League schools. And he was, uh, in conjunction with the Earl of Dartmouth, a great supporter of evangelical ministry in what were then the colonies. And Richard Johnson, the first chaplain on the first fleet, was one of Thornton's and the Earl of Dartmouth's um, appointees. And Johnson's Bible on his trip was given to him by John Thornton. So he provided great encouragement to uh, Newton and to William Cooper, who was the poet uh, who Newton brought into his home when he had a nervous breakdown. He encouraged Newton to publish first the only hymn book, uh, then the Ministry on My Mind, which was a great book that uh, Newton wrote to help young men to think about ministry. He used to provide um, great support in terms of his own time. He would take these men away with him, to encourage one another, to preach to one another, uh, and to advise one another. And it's said of, uh, of Thornton when he died by his great friend Henry Venn, few of the followers of the Lamb have ever done more to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and help all that suffer adversity, and to spread the savour of the knowledge of Christ crucified. So John Thornton, the patron of John Newton. Selina, Countess of Huntington, supported both the Wesleys uh, initially 
uh, and then George Whitfield. She was responsible for the establishment of 64 chapels through England. She was responsible for the establishment of the Theological College at Trevecca in Wales. She was an awesome evangelist. But she would bring George Whitfield into her drawing room to evangelize the aristocracy of England. And then later in the evening, Whitfield would go down to her kitchen and he would preach the gospel to the people who came in to her kitchen to hear the gospel preached uh, and to be fed. She was actively involved with Whitfield uh, and with Wesley initially. Uh, she was a wise counselor. Wesley would seek her theological input and she actually took him to task on his antinomianism. And Henry Venn was her student on atonement. So Selina Countess of Huntington, the patron of two of the great men of the, uh, of the 18th century evangelical revival. And William Berger. William Berger was uh, a uh, starch manufacturer uh, in the north of England. And he was also the patron of Hudson Taylor. He became the first uh, home director of the China Inland Mission. And for him, it was a hard task because so much of what was going on in China was unknown to him. You can imagine the communications lines between England and China in the, in the 19th century. And so he took it on the chin for a lot of things that were happening in China that the news was leaking back, and he didn't really know uh, what, was, uh, what was happening. But his financial support, his moral support uh, back home was very, very important to the work of Hudson Taylor. Well, that's just a quick skip through history by a former engineer. Um, <laughs> uh, as you can tell, I'm not a great historian, but it's interesting stuff, and it's important. And I think that the two things that I want to, uh, I want to uh, emphasize uh, as I close here uh, is, is one for you who are in ministry, who are taking what you've learned on the Arrow Leadership course back uh, into your respective roles, and one is for those of you who are already supporting uh, in one way or another, those who are in ministry. And the first is that there's a great um, godly discontent, isn't there, that we see in these characters, these characters in ministry that we've just looked at. A great godly discontent. It's a strange word, that, isn't it, because we always think of godly content. But these men were discontent with the status quo. They had a vision that was very big. They had a vision for bringing scripture to the common man. They had a vision for uh, bringing the gospel to tens of thousands of people. They had a vision for bringing the gospel to a whole new nation uh, in China. So godly discontent, that drove them to action, that drove them to think big. So if you're graduating today, I just want you to take that home with you and reflect on it and think about that for your own ministry uh, and for your own lives. And for those of us uh, who aren't in paid ministry, uh, but have the opportunity to partner, to stand behind, to stand with these men and women who are graduating today, uh, I think that there are some important things that we can see in these patrons that we've been looking at. The first is their great focus on supporting word ministry. The recognition of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is what the world needs more than anything else. And that was common across all of these patrons that I've been talking about. The second is the, the relational nature of their support. It was more than just checkbook philanthropy. It was being in partnership with these people who were, they were supporting. 
being alongside them, suffering with them, caring for them, encouraging them, sometimes no doubt rebuking them. And the third is their sacrifice. Mum has put his business and his life on the line to support William Tinder, the Thorntons, the Salinas of the world. They were, they were very wealthy people in, a, in an opulent and hedonistic age called the Regency period in England. But they shunned that. They shunned that to do the work of being patrons. And, and they, were, they were looked on with strange eyes by their contemporaries. Mm. They gave themselves to it wholeheartedly. Mm. So as we reflect on those things, those of us, those of you who are graduating today, who are going back to your jobs of ministry, and those of us who um, would be patrons, who would stand with you um, in your work, um, I hope that uh, what I've said will be an encouragement, but also a spur. Let me finish with these words from 2 Corinthians. And he died for all, that those who live, ministers or patrons, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Mm. Amen. Amen. Uh, I really appreciate Simon 